listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to Talking Law, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have the last part, part three of our three-part series, all about the most important steps in increasing the multiplier of your business, i.e. how to achieve exponential growth in the value of your business. Um, I thought this was an absolutely bumper uh, three-part series that we recorded with, of course, the fabulous Mark Johnston from Sherlaw's Group and Nathan Williams from Customer Return. Now, if you haven't listened to the first two parts of this three-part series, then I highly recommend you go back to the two episodes that precede the episode you're listening to right now so that you can hear us go through what it is and what it means to increase the multiplier of your business and why you would care, and where we step through the first initial steps in increasing the multiplier of your business. Now, of course, in this episode, we finish it all off um, and we have some great case studies that we look at today and some really big numbers in terms of growth in business value that has come about because of following these six steps. So buckle in. Um, Here we go for our very last episode in our three-part series all about increasing the multiplier of your business. All right, let's move on to step four now. What is our step four in terms of increasing the multiplier of a business? Our step four is channel extension, creating distribution channels. And along with product extension, it's the two most valuable things that an SME owner can do. And channel extension in and of itself is the most valuable because what creating channel extensions does or creating channels to market, it actually creates future income. So a lot of us receive referrals from individuals on an ad hoc basis, but actually going out there and targeting the right referral partners, the right channel partners to give us multiple referrals means that we can create not only an an increase in revenue for this year, but most importantly, identifiable future revenues because if we have six or seven or eight channel partner agreements where they're going to send us eight clients a year we can then count on 64 clients a year coming into our business next year and what that says to an investor is there is that that future pipeline is is almost guaranteed and most importantly when we start to think about it strategically what we're able to do is once we own a channel to market we can then put other products through that. So, you know, an example of a channel to market is Facebook. It started as a product and it is now, along with Google, one of the largest advertisers in the world and people Mm. pay a premium, just like Mm. they pay a premium to get in the app store because they own a channel to market. So they own end-user clients. So once we create those relationships, what we want to do is once we've built those channels, the reason they're so valuable is because we can charge or, you know, other people will pay us for access 
to our database, et cetera. So the channels to market are hugely valuable in, in the future growth of the business. And thirdly, and most importantly, it builds, in, it builds um, risk management with respect to our product because if we just focus on a product and the market shifts or there's a technological change, our business value proposition goes out the window. But if we own those channels to market, um, we can then, with new products that might disintermediate our old ones, we can then now put those through a different way. And, and a great example of that is the newspapers, you know, 25 years ago, um, you know, 26 of 27 newspapers in the United States were in Chapter 11 because they thought they were in the printing business. They didn't realise they were in the content business. And it took 10 years to convince their old management teams that they actually weren't in printing, but they were in content creation and content distribution. Now, mm. all of us can look back 10 years later and scratch our heads as to why that happened. Mm. But as someone who was doing a Masters of e-business at the time, it was, you know, it was mind-blowingly old-fashioned in the way they were thinking because they just couldn't get their head wraps, wrapped around one day our product will be delivered differently. And that channel, wow. you know, that channel is Twitter today was worth $23.6 billion United States dollars and it doesn't make any profit. But what it has is a channel. Wow. What what are examples then have of taking an SME through this process? Maybe let's even go back one step. What are some of the easiest sort of examples, easiest ways that they can start to implement this? Step one and the easiest way to do it is firstly to build the right channel relationship. So what we see in SMEs is they'll have a business develop someone doing BDM work, business yep. development manager work, and that person might have seven hundred names on their contact list. And their job is to bring referrals into the business. So it's not traditionally sales activity, which is a one-to-one sale. Channels are about one relationship bringing 25 into the business. Mm -hmm. And the mistake a lot of SMEs make is they try and do more and they don't do it with an aligned position. So what the SME needs to do is the three criteria a channel partner must have is they must match you culturally and commercially. They must be able to pre-sell you to their clients and they must be able to send you pre-qualified leads, i.e. Mm. Henry Ford, any colour you want as long as it's black. And, <laughs> and, and that ability to pre-sell is what we call, you know, that trusted advisor. So as a someone who provides business coaching and consulting services, the only there are only five types of people or organisations that can pre-sell us with an SME and send us an SME or an SME will listen to it. SMEs won't listen to their IT guy, they won't listen to their marketing guy, they won't listen to the person collecting the trash. An SME owner will listen to their lawyer, their mm. accountant, their financial advisor, their banker slash investor, and their lawyer. The five people they listen to. So what we do is say build a referral relationship with the right sort of folks. So as an accounting firm, accountants are our largest referral sources, but we've never targeted PwC for referrals. I used to work there for five years. They used to be a client of mine in the US for two years. And they're our, you know, they're our, they're the best accounting firm in our sector. But our referrals only come from third tier accounting firms. So first tier accounting firms will never refer Sherlaws. They're going to refer McKinsey. 
because mm. they're both big firms. Second tier accounting firms are spending a lot of their time trying to make up the first tier. So at Sherlaw's, we work really well with third and fourth tier accounting firms who are in the glass building at the business park, look and feel like us, where are and Williams, those sorts of things. Mm. Well, And they've got $10 million SME clients we can help mm. and we can refer the right sort of clients. So when you build channels, you've got to get really focused, mm. building the right relationships. And once they're built, that's when you can start to get strategic about them and say, look, there's actually some commerciality of income here. So one of the things that we then do is, you know, give an opportunity for the accounting firm to be licensed in our IP so that they can actually keep the revenue stream themselves because we don't offer or accept commissions for referrals. It's all done in the client's best interest. So once you've built those relationships, then you can introduce things like joint ventures, acquisitions, mm. but you've gone through the dating process before getting married. One of the yes. risks of you know, growth via acquisition is that you get married after the first date. Yes. What you've got to do is get to know each other, go on holidays, et cetera, et cetera. So once you've got those channel relationships, they're tight. And mm. they will then refer you to their network. So what we've found over our growth years is our channel partners that send us referrals and we refer back, we're like, we're informal partners. Mm. We, want, we're, we want each other to be successful. We want to help each other. We have the unvarnished conversations because we're all mm. human beings. But once, you know, as an SME, once you've got those five or six channels built, you can then have the right commercial decision around joint ventures, which does create that multiplier growth. So mm. the first step is to build them. Then the second step is to monetize them for everyone's benefit, most importantly, our mutual clients. And then thirdly, you know, once you've got those channels, look at other opportunities. So in our business, our uh, one of the channels we are now working with our channel partners on is we have an online education a product that we're about to launch um, and it's on a platform called learningstone.com and we've been furiously building it so that we can actually then give that to our channel partners as a commercial opportunity back so once you so talk, talk us through how that works I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that so so how 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 will that actually work as part of this strategy can you walk us really quickly through it so once we have our online component and our education yep. component, with uh, so we have we're licensing our IP. So one of the things mm. in our product innovation and productizing is create nine hundred and eighty four bits of IP. So what we're doing is saying to um, other providers who have relationship with it, with SMEs, rather than refer us, why wouldn't you take a license, license our IP, mm. and um, then deliver that to your clients as another revenue stream. Mm. So if you're a, a, an accounting firm and you've got 100 SMEs, we can say, well, if 20 of them buy our product, there's a certain amount of revenue and it's another revenue stream for you. It's a stickier client. We'll support you through our online learning system and our training processes. And you know where we get away from the traditional problems of franchising or income relationship is we also try and create equity value in that for them as well so we mm. always look for the equity so there's an example where we've built our product along the way as a business and then the next layer was to say well then how can we actually help our channel relationships our traditional partners in referring actually create another revenue stream because you know in what you know in the accounting sector right now there's a significant amount of firms that are up for sale or are owned by baby boomers and part of the the risk when you hand over a service business when there's humans involved, whether it's a law firm, accounting firm, a consulting firm, is there's a lot of personal relationships from the yeah. existing partners into the clients 
And sometimes that internal succession doesn't work. So actually building ways to de-risk that internal succession by creating other products, other revenue streams within their business means that the clients will be stickier and actually through that handover because if they're not sticky, they may go to someone else, especially Mm. if that client's going through succession themselves. Mm. 70% of SMEs in Australia are are owned by baby boomers, Mm. um, which means, you know, and the oldest baby boomer is 74. So that means there is going to be the largest transfer of business ownership in history in the next five years. So it's both for us as professionals but also for us as, you know, as as taxpaying Australians, it's in all of our interest to keep those SMEs as healthy as possible so that they can continue um, growing because if there's not a succession strategy, well, that SME owner isn't going to monetize their lifetime's work because there's just not the demand for the the businesses. Mortgages are too expensive. Absolutely. And, of course, like right in these times of COVID that, this discussion is even more, you know, it's even more, more relevant than yeah, than ever, than yeah. ever. Okay, all right. Um, so that was, I think that was step number four. So I think we're up to number five. How does that, does, yes. uh, do you guys concur? We're up I'm to d- the right step. Yeah, <laughs> I, I might just add a, I'll just add a really Please quick do, one around, around yep. channel puns, if that's all right. I'm just following on, on the back of what uh, Mark was talking about. Um, look, over the last, 10 years, we've helped a lot of businesses close what we call the, the referral gap. So we're alluding back to those uh, client feedback surveys I was talking about before, and this is absolutely relevant for referral partners as well. What we've found is that when asked the question, would you refer this business at the end of a, of a feedback conversation, what we found is 90% of people on average, and bearing in mind these are normally the, the highly engaged clients and or referral partners of a business, 90% of people say yes. When we then started asking the cheeky follow-up question, have you referred that business? Only 10% of people had in the last 12 months. So my point there is there's a big gap between the intention to refer or to become a channel partner and the action of that actually happening. So just to draw down quickly um, on a few points Mark was talking about, beyond the obvious uh, examples of people not having a referral goal or a specific goal around channel partners and channel extension, uh, often they're not getting feedback from prospective referrers about how they feel about the relationship and whether or not it's going to go ahead. A lot of people can waste a lot of time having these conversations because they see the upside of the potential channel partnership or referral partnership but don't address the potential fears as well or the, or the, or the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really important to have a really clear message about what you're about as a business and why you're seeking a channel partnership or a referral partnership with a particular business, and then beyond that, have a clear process about how to do that. You know, so a lot of businesses I find can't even answer what I think are some fairly basic questions about who to refer to them, when to refer to them, how to refer to them, why to refer to them, those sort of questions, and what to refer for. So we have, for our clients, a very basic, it's basic, but the simplicity is the power of it, a one-page referral checklist answering those sorts of questions. Whereas I think too many businesses go about thinking about new channels or new referral partnerships, but don't address the questions in the mind of the of the prospective referrer. Yep. I you know, who to refer, when to refer, how to refer, et cetera, et cetera. So you've really got to drill down and have that process in place and answer those questions for the prospective referrer for it to actually happen. Absolutely fabulous. All of these are really great points. And, and, and we've covered it partly, uh, I think, 
by this um, idea of focusing in on, um, you know, the creation of IP and licensing. But but one of the issues in um, creating referral relationships is how you can do this at scale. And I, and I guess as you're talking about here, it's about making sure your messaging is clear and that your process is clear. Yeah, and, 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 and critically, sorry, you, and you're prepared to, you know, enter into high growth markets. If you mm-hmm. look at Maloney, you know, the Maloney family, they you know, started a mining services business and sold it for $800 million uh, a few years back purely because they picked a high growth market. You know, mm-hmm. so, so that ability to piggyback, like think like an investor, pick the growth markets, piggyback into that, um, you know, specifically target those high growth markets. Sometimes the gap that SME owners don't because when a high growth market happens, all the startups you know, madly jump into it and try and follow it to prosecute the strategy mm. and investors do. But SME owners are sometimes, well, we don't do that. This is what we do on the tools. But, you know, it's the old Union Pacific thought they were in railways didn't realise they were in transport. Yeah, 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 brilliant. Great example. Okay, so step five. Step five of our six steps to increasing the multiplier of your business. Take it away. Um, This is um, one of the most strategic conversations to have when running a business. And the critical thing to understand with positioning is it's the perception in the consumer's mind of your business. And whilst we may think about our business a certain ways, the, the business we are really in is what the consumer thinks our business is. So that's both the industry we're in and our business. So what we often see is with positioning, people are limiting themselves by not actually recognising the value of what they have and the, and the assets within their business. So we had a client um, in, uh, when we first started our business, actually, uh, in 2000, and it was a conference management business in Paddington in Sydney, Australia. Uh, it was run by two partners, 61 and 63 years of age, and they were looking to exit. They had 43 staff, uh, $11 million revenue, but around only 3% margin. So it was, profit was around $50,000. And they got a valuation on the business of $50,000 times four and a $200,000 valuation. And so we looked at the business and we looked at what was in the business and they actually had a whole bunch of assets that were valuables to others in the industry. So they thought they were in the conference management sector and that's a, that's a, you know, that's, that's a, that's a really risky market. You know, it, it's, not, it's low margin, it's highly reliant on personal relationships, mm. um, which is why the, you know, the valuation was so low. So what we identified was that there was another position in the market or another sector of the market um, called corporate travel that someone might want to buy a business who was in corporate travel with a lot of experience because the corporate travel marketplace was a, a growth industry at the time and a lot of new entrants. So mm-hmm. we and this specific company had a certain amount of data that was that was its IP, they had relationships and knowledge around their clients. So what we did was we went to that market and said we're actually not going to sell the business but we're going to create a corporate travel business. And what that created in the marketplace was then a bidding war amongst established players who were going to bot, who viewed it as a defensive investment ah. because they were established players and if these if this business entered it with the relationships they had and the right funding they could make a go of it and we also positioned it for other people entering the market as a buy or build which was as another company who had a balance sheet it might take four years for you to build this and it might cost you a couple million bucks and then you would get there. So we 
lined up the buy or build folks against the defensive and the highest bidder bought the business for $11 million. Oh, stop. That is ridiculous. That is such a good story, Mark. I love that one. Mm. So that is a difference in valuation Off. between $200,000 and, and $11 million. Okay. All right. Now walk me through how long this took. 18 months. Get out of here. Three, month, three months to convince them. <laughs> <laughs> Because their response was like yours. Uh, uh, three to six months to actually develop the strategy, research it, and um, actually about nine months. And the process actually, uh, the, the sales process only took around three months. Jeez. Because again, uh, because the advantage wow. is if, if, you're, if there's a buy or build conversation for exist, you know, new entrants and also a defensive investment mm. for existing players in the market, people will pull the trigger on a defensive investment yeah. much more to protect what they've yes. built much more quickly than a, we've got a fantastic opportunity, it's yes. blah, 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 you know, yes. Silicon Valley, slide decks, all those sorts of things. People, you know, repositioning the business in that way just allowed the, you know, allowed us to, to choose the right people. So we didn't have to take it to 70 people and go to market. It was really 12 players who were active opportunities. Um, and part of it is... Actually, you know, as an advisor, you know, whether you, you have your law hat on or your, your, your accounting hat, you know, part of our job as advisors uh, is to help our clients, you know, coach them through that process of, you know, this is the opportunity, this is, this is, the, this is the, the scripting we need to do, the pitch deck, um, and, and coaching them through that because it was a mindset shift, you know. Mm. I'm just saying to people who have run a business for, for a couple of decades, well, you think you're in um, conference management but you actually could position into this market and this could mm. be the value proposition um you know it's it's just like you know the newspapers 20 years ago they thought they were yeah. in, they didn't realize they're in content but maybe it's all about um you know the longer you're in a business as well the stronger those blinkers are you know well, um we, we always say the most courageous management teams or leadership teams are the ones that cannibalize their own business mm. and, I, and I, uh, I corrected myself on the difference between management and leadership management will never make a courageous decision, whereas leadership will. And as I said, the leadership team that, you know, cannibalises its own business before a competition be reborn another way or to, you know, to create another product, they're really courageous. Um, you know, and we used, um, you know, the story of Union Pacific. You know, Union Pacific thought they were in railways and had been for 50 years. They didn't realise they were in transport. And if they knew they were in transport, they would have bought Ford Motor Company in 1909 Mm. And they would have bought the, the the IP to fly an airplane from the Wright brothers in 1905. Mm. In railways, we don't have to worry about aircrafts, travel, and and car. Whereas the company that used to make the sleepers for Union Pacific, um, which were wood, was called South Pacific Rail Infrastructure Network. And what this company used to do was chop down trees and makes um, make um, sleepers, but they didn't think they were in the sleeper business. They knew they were in the infrastructure support business. So South Pacific Rail Infrastructure Network is now known as Sprint in the United mm. States and they mm. provide cell phone towers and all those infrastructure supports to modern-day giants 140 years later. So they've been around 140 years longer than Union Pacific because they kept evolving their business to their core skill, which was infrastructure support, and as new industries rose and declined, they kept adapting their value proposition. You know, that, that, that requires a really diligent leadership process and, and, and some courage. Mm. 
Brilliant. Okay, wonderful. Well, look, guys, um, this is it. We are up to number six, the last step, the final step in our six steps to increase the multiplier of your business. Tell us, what is that sixth step? And it's, it's the most valuable, but it's not rocket science. It's about identifying scale. Um, and, it, and it's led on the top of some of our conversations before, which is if you think about your business differently and get off the tools and think about your business as an investor, you start to change the product opportunities, the product extension. You start to build different channels to market, think about licensing your business, um, and then you know create um, those opportunities that we talked about around repositioning your business because you're thinking like Sprint, not like Union Pacific. So mm-hmm. why I referenced venture capital before is, you know, 98.4% of the returns come from the asset class you're in, not your company. So that's why mining in the last 15 years has outperformed banking because every mining company in Australia has made lots of money because iron ore prices were so high. So what they look, what the venture capitalists look for in Silicon Valley is either a market in decline, which is their aggregation opportunities, mm. but most importantly, a growth market. So their number one criteria when investing in a firm is, is there a significant growth? Is this a growth market we can piggyback into? Do we have a product that can make money? And do we have the management team skills to, to grow that? Mm. Which is what they often refer to as putting the band back together in those high growth companies. So where scale sits is if you're an SME and what we need to do is Spend that time in your business seeing around corners, which is predicting the future. Now, none of us can predict the future. Anyone that mm. tells you they can selling you something. But by actually spending the time off the tools, looking at industry trends, looking at opportunities, looking at market intel proactively, you can start to see around corners or identify trends and position into them. So we had a client um, in the States in Silicon Valley that was venture capital-backed. And they had, their product one was a, um, a product around um, engaging customers on the iPhone when it first started. So the world's uh, most iconic um, venture capital firm, Kleiner Perkins, gave them $4.4 million at a $10 million valuation. And their P1 was failing spectacularly. And we sat down with the chief technology officer, Sam, and said, Sam, you're spending 86% of your time on what he'd he deemed OS tasks, oh shit tasks, just <laughs> P1. Right. <laughs> and their second product, which was called My Nightclub City, which was this way to engage people to become the mayor of a nightclub and, you know, millennials and Gen Xs and all these sorts of folks, what we were seeing was this thing called sticky eyeballs. So where scale sits is one of the assets that Twitter has that's not on their balance sheet is people are on it. It's mm. called sticky eyeballs and you're engaging with it. So what we realised was that this was a sticky eyeball product and, and that the market was moving and the iPhone, this was 2009, the iPhone market was exploding. So the question we said to Sam was, did Kleiner give you $4.4 million at a $10 million valuation to fix a failing product or should we redeploy all the resources? And there was about 100 staff in the business to create my nightclub city and scale into that market. Mm. And, of course, the answer was obvious. And so nine months later, uh, a gentleman called Jim Breyer, who was a seed investor in Facebook, invested $20 million at a $100 million valuation in their product. So the Val went from 10 mil to 100 mil in nine months, all off the back 
of a scale because yeah. if there is a scale opportunity, if you have a product to position into that and to get those sticky eyeballs, other investors will pay overs to piggyback and protect themselves, just like Facebook paid a billion dollars for Instagram on its 517th day in operation mm. because it was a defensive play. So what scale represents is where's the growth market? Mm. How can I sell shovels in a gold rush? <laughs> Not Since 1849, there's been gold rushes around the world and <laughs> Levi's makes the most money. Yeah. Oh, look, I absolutely love it. Um, you guys have um, just had so many fabulous insights that you've brought to today. I've just got one last question um, for both of you. Out of these six areas, which one do each of you um, feel um, from what you've seen is the most critical for if, if businesses could only do one of them, could only do one of the six steps because they were short on time or short on ideas, I don't know, energy, if they could only do one, which one would you recommend? Product extension. Product extension for Mark. Okay, and how about for you, Nathan? I wanted to have a bit each way, Joanne. I wanted to say product, <laughs> product and channel. Um, so did I, but, she, but I, I find Joanne's questions. I, I, I'm trying to get top of the Mark was being compliant. Nathan, I was being compliant. No, that's, that's overrated, Joanne. I'd say product and channel. I <laughs> didn't break the rules. I don't care. I don't care the way you ask the question. I'm just answering <laughs> my way. Okay, product and channel. Okay, I love it. Look, guys, I just want to say a massive thank you. Um, it's been an absolutely fabulous discussion uh, to today and I, I want you both back so that we can really hone into this um, acquisitions discussion as yeah. well um, where one plus one equals four I think that's the way you described it to me yes Mark, it is I'm, I'm with you I absolutely <laughs> yeah. absolutely love it um, so let's come back uh, together uh, another day soon and, and we'll talk more about acquisition as a growth strategy which is some um, a topic that I absolutely love so mm. uh, I, I think we'll probably have another bumper number of episodes talking about that but just a massive thank you uh, for coming on the show before we go Please just tell us um, how our listeners can get in contact with each of you um, if, if they'd like to find out more about what it is that you do or find out how to engage your organisation services. Um, Mark, we'll start with you. Um, as a simple, uh, www.sherlawsgroup.com or mark.johnstone at sherlawsgroup.com, but just go to our website, www.shirlawsgroup.com. Brilliant. Thank okay. Thanks, Wonderful. everyone. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. And Nathan, over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Joanna. Yeah, uh, on, on the web at www.customerreturn.com.au. Brilliant. Guys, once again, a massive thank you. I've had a blast. I hope you have too. I'm sure I was <laughs> going to have as well. <laughs> Thanks, Joanna. Well, that's it for part three of our three-part series, all about the six steps to increasing the multiplier of your business. Now, if you have forgotten what those six steps are, please let me remind you. We had number one, talent, capability, and culture. We had number two, product innovation, i.e. recurring revenue, uh, which is certainly a very interesting and topical 
subject at the moment. And, and I think, you know, we gave it a lot of color in discussing it um, in part two of our three-part series. So that's back in the last episode. Um, so we also talked about number three, product extension and distribution channels. And we also talked a little bit about the opportunities for acquisition here. Step four, which is channel extension. Step five, positioning and step six, scale. So I hope you enjoyed that walkthrough, the uh, six steps to increasing the multiplier of your business. Of course, we had on board the fabulous Mark Johnston from Sherlaw's Group and Nathan Williams from Customer Return. Now, if you'd like to find more information about this topic, then all you need to do is head over to our website at talkinglaw.com. where you'll be able to download a transcript of this episode if you'd like to read through it in fine detail. There on the website and in our show notes, you also find details of how to contact Mark Johnston um, and Nathan Williams. And you will also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss how you can use a legal strategy to help build the foundation of your business and set it up well for growth so that as you grow, you don't blow yourself up or cause many distracting fires along the way. Of course, we work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. So don't hesitate to book an appointment via our website at talkinglaw.com.au or over at aspectlegal.com.au. We have a free inquiry booking service. Just book yourself in and you can have a chat to one of our legal eagles about how we can assist you or your clients today. Well, that's it. I just want to say a massive thank you for listening into this three-part series. I really enjoyed recording it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And I just want to say a massive thank you for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and Talking Law, which is a podcast that is very proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Are you looking for a top quality legal team to assist you in your organisation? Aspect Legal is an innovative commercial legal practice that specialises in providing fast and professional services for their clients. If you'd like to chat about how we might be able to assist you, simply head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au to book in a time for a free discussion with one of our lawyers. Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au.